be here again sharing what God has laid on my heart. As Pastor Josh said, today we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, Commandment number seven, Thou shalt not commit adultery. My wife and I both love the ocean. We love going to the beach. Um, but thankfully, I'm married to someone that agrees with me. Neither one of us could see ourselves living in a landlocked state. Uh, we just love being at the ocean. Last Saturday, we, um, the night before our anniversary, were able to go up to one of our favorite beaches up in Rhode Island, Mapperfree Point. A lot of you probably may not have heard of that. It's right next to Watch Hill. It's a little harder to get to. It's a little off the beaten path. But it's just a gorgeous, long, quiet stretch of beach. At the end of that beach, at the point from which it gets its name, on the back side of the dunes, there's an old abandoned artillery emplacement. It was built around the turn of the 20th century, um, the early 1900s. There were two batteries on the back side of it, one on the front. And when it was in its heyday, you could look at pictures, which is another thing I love doing, is, is looking at abandoned places and looking at historical pictures and postcards and just envisioning what it would have been like during its heyday when it was at its busiest. And during its busiest, there was almost a little town separate from Watch Hill that was up on top of those dunes to support that battery. There was a hospital there, there was a barracks, there was a store, there were just all sorts of buildings up there. The problem is this, they ran war games at one point to test that defense system, and they discovered that there was an angle that the ships could come in that the, none of the three guns could touch them. So they made the decision that in spite of all of the time and money and effort that they'd invested in, into this defensive position, that it was indefensible. And they made a decision to decommission it and abandon them. The building stood for a while, but then a few years after that, a hurricane came in. The buildings are gone. There's no sign of them now. The, um, the landscape has completely reclaimed it. It's just dunes now. But you can still hike up over the dunes if you know it's there. Um, it's all overgrown. Unless you know it's there, it's not easy to find. And you can still see the ruins of this artillery emplacement. And as I mentioned, now it's all over, overgrown with prickers and poison ivy and all sorts of just nasty stuff. People have come through and put their artwork on it. It's covered with graffiti. There's broken glass. It's just, it's not a pretty place. But it's still interesting to look and envision what it once was, to imagine what it once was. Today, we live in a society that's becoming ever more relativistic. If it feels good, do it. You have a right to be happy. Your personal pleasure and enjoyment and happiness is the most important thing in the world. And that's the society that we live in. And unfortunately, some of those attitudes have crept into the church. Pastor Josh, when he met with William and Tyler and I this spring to discuss kind of our planning for this year, and we initially talked about doing a series on the Ten Commandments, I'll never forget, Josh said, you know, I really envision this as a series on, on a strong power. What are those spiritual and moral issues that we as believers should fight and die for? What are those hills that we should take a defensive position and defend? And not only that, but for me personally, I think of it as the Ten Commandments, they also offer a place of protection for us if we're following those, if we're living lives in obedience to them. They show us how we should live our lives. They protect us from the harm and the dangers that come 
when we don't live in obedience. I feel that this is especially true for the seventh commandment, adultery. Adultery is, is so destructive. We know that God created the physical intimacy between a husband and a wife to be a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, that message has gotten distorted over the years where some people have a slightly different view of it within Christianity, but the Bible is very clear that God created that to be a beautiful thing for the enjoyment of a husband and a wife. Hebrews 13, 4, the first part of that verse, says marriage is honorable in all, and the marriage bed undefiled. Genesis 1, 28, right at the beginning, the very first chapter of the Bible, God says, be fruitful and multiply. We have the book, the Song of Solomon, which I've done a, a Bible study on that um, in the past. And Song of Solomon is a poetic book, and that entire book is dedicated to documenting Solomon's courtship for his bride, the desire that they had for one another, and then the celebration of their physical intimacy as husband and wife. God created that to be a beautiful thing. But just like anything that God created is beautiful, we know God's word says that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Other places it compares the fire, it, it talks about the fiery arrows that Satan throws out, trying to destroy. See, Satan can't create anything. He can't make anything new. The best that he can hope to do is to try and pervert and destroy what God created as beautiful. And if we look around at our creation, if we look at each of these ten commandments, we can identify for each of them, but especially the seventh commandment, a way that that is under attack, a way that Satan has made a concentrated effort to try and destroy and pervert what God created. The relationship between a husband and a wife is the very foundation of society. It's the very foundation of the church, the body of believers. It was God's design to populate the earth. Adultery is so destructive. I've seen it destroy families, seen it destroy communities, seen it destroy churches because of a pattern of sin and a pattern of unrepentance. Ongoing adultery will consume and destroy what God created as good, will destroy what God created as perfect. Proverbs 6.32 says, the one who commands, who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. And I'd also add, destroys those around him. You see, it's for this reason that we're given this commandment. God, in his infinite wisdom, he knew how destructive adultery was. He knew the damage that it would cause. And he wants to protect us from that. Exodus 20, 14, verse to be up in the screen. It's pretty straightforward. Do not commit adultery. It doesn't leave any room for interpretation or misinterpretation. Do not. The old King James says, thou shalt not. It doesn't say thou shouldn't. It's really bad. Maybe you might want to think about it. It says, do not. Period. End of discussion. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses was preparing the Israelites, to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land that God had prepared, promised to them. He restates the Ten Commandments that God gave to him to this 
these second-generation Israelites. Remember, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And again, Moses restates the Ten Commandments, this being one of them, to remind them of what God's plan is for them, of what God's expectations are. To remind them of that, to remind them to live lives of obedience. We know that this commandment was also restated in the New Testament. Romans 13, 9. Paul, as he's writing this epistle to the Roman church, he states the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's been said that the Ten Commandments lay out an outline of our relationship with God, of what our expectations are, of how we should interact in our relationship with God, and then the last of the Ten Commandments lay out our relationship with each other, with our fellow man, and how we should interact with them. And as we see throughout the New Testament, it's taken a step further from the simple commandment of do not, do not, do not, do not. And it's summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ himself said that. Paul restates it in this epistle. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've been married for 23 years. And it would make me physically ill to think of my life being with someone else. So why would I want to do that to her? Love your neighbor as yourself. The expression came to mind, there's been a country song by Shania Twain written about this that originated from my research. Good old Ron, President Ronnie Reagan, back in the early 80s, dance with the one that brought you. And in that he was saying, stay faithful, stay loyal to those people that have stood beside you, that have had your back. And I thought of the application for a marriage relationship. Dance with the one that brought you. Because a healthy marriage is a dance. Dance with the one that brought you. Stay loyal to the one that's been by your side. Like I said, Charlie and I have been married. We just celebrated last Sunday. That's why we weren't here. We had the pleasure of celebrating our 23rd wedding anniversary. And I look back at the memories and the life that we've built together. But I also look back at all the times that either one of us could have just washed our hands of it. Said, I'm done. And how easily it would have been to do that at that time. But because we we're committed to each other. We were committed to the vows that we took in 1995 because we were committed to loving each other, even when we may not have liked each other. You know, we, I joke at times we made the vow till death do us part, and at times we thought that might be a pretty good option. One of us is going to have to die. So praise God. And I do give credit for him for sustaining our marriage. You know, it's easy. We could all agree adultery, cheating on your spouse. There's not a whole lot of argument about that. We could all agree on that this morning. It's giving to someone else something that you've dedicated and committed to somebody else. Giving to somebody something that you have no business giving to them and they have no business giving to you. However, the Bible, as with most things, goes a little bit further than that. Particularly in the New Testament. Like I said, it, the New Testament, Christ, and then the epistles we see, it goes a step further from just do not commit adultery. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. That 
that's the only commandment you need to remember. But it also goes a step further. Matthew 19.9 says, And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Kind of ironic that that adultery is the one exception that's, that's clearly outlined in the Bible as a justification for divorce. And friends, I'm not going to, this sermon isn't about divorce and remarriage. I don't intend to go there, nor do I want to go there this morning. That's a whole other sermon, a whole other series. But the culture then and now, and I think we can all agree on this, whatever our views on divorce, the culture then and now has made marriage cheap and divorce easy. If you don't have the warm fuzzies anymore, if things aren't going quite right, then you just call it a day. And you move on to the next one, because there's plenty of other fish in the sea. You go down to a courthouse, and I know there's money involved, but you go down to a courthouse and you say, irreconcilable differences. And the judge signs the paper and you parse your words. I also want to be sure to mention today, because I know that this is also something that pre- is preached sometimes in church, which I feel pastors do a great disservice in when they do preach this. Abuse is an entirely different penalty. That I believe that God knows your heart and God knows the situation. Once again, in another case, Matthew 5 27 through 28 goes another step further, and this is one that I think really hits a lot of us. You've heard that it was said to not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? And I think especially for, in most cases, men, because we're visual creatures. But in this day and age of magic, Mike, and Fifty Shades of Grey, we know that this problem isn't limited to men. You see, in the past, in the verses just prior to this, Christ had said, if you have hate in your heart, you've already murdered somebody. Christ is addressing, he's making it clear that sin begins in the heart long before the actual act ever takes place. It begins with Satan whispering in your eyes. Whispering in your ears, rather, whispering the lies. Don't you deserve to be happy? Don't you deserve to have your needs met? Oh, Sarah's going to be so much better than your wife. She actually laughs at your jokes. Oh, he makes you feel pretty. Your husband doesn't anymore. He listens. Isn't that a much better option? Because you deserve to be happy. This is all in an effort to destroy. Like I said, Satan walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And he looks for those weak spots in our marriage. He looks for those cracks. And he tries to get into those cracks and expand them to their chasm between us. Unfortunately, just like the government decided back at the turn of the century that the that Fort Mansfield, that was the name of that fort at the point of Tapestry Point, just like they decided that Fort Mansfield was indefensible, too often we buy into those lies and we 
don't see the destruction that's waiting for us. When we buy into those lies, we decide, you know what? It's just not worth it anymore. I've invested all this time and energy, and it's just too painful. My needs aren't being met. I'm not happy. He doesn't listen. And they decide it's, it's indefensible. It's easier to abandon rather than fighting for it, rather than defending it. As I mentioned, we talked about the Ten Commandments being a strong power to both defend and take refuge in, and our marriages should be the same thing. We need to be of the mindset in all areas of our life, but particularly our marriage, that we're a battle. We're at a spiritual battle. And battles cost. And love costs. Unfortunately, like I said before, a lot of the attitudes in our culture, a lot of the philosophies in our culture have crept into our church. According to an article in Christianity Today in November 2015, 60% of marriages will somehow face this problem of infidelity. And unfortunately, if you look at the statistics and you look at the research, the church and Christianity is not exempt from this. Pastors aren't exempt from this. If you look at the statistics, which I, I don't like to throw a lot of statistics into the sermon, but if you look at the statistics, of pastors and church members that are faced with infidelity, that are faced with pornography addiction, faced with lust. The statistics are very sad. And it should be a call to us to fight. 1 Corinthians 6 9 says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, Adulterers or anyone fighting homosexuality. First Corinthians was written to a church that was a mess. It was an absolute fiasco. One of the central issues that that church was facing was because one of the men in the church had had an affair with his stepmother. And that's one of the addresses that Paul is, is stating. He's saying, Church, you don't have any business playing with these things. If you say you're a Christian, stay away from them. People that engage in these things don't have any part in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't have any part in you. When Christians engage in this behavior, there's also the added, and I've, I've seen it firsthand, testimonies that are destroyed for community particularly when it's someone in a leadership position. And God will hold us accountable for that because we are called for much more. The Bible is very clear. You will know them by your fruit. You will know them by their actions. It's referring to a pattern of behavior. What are you known for? Those who are following God can't continuously engage in sinful behavior. Scriptures are very clear on that. So my first point was a challenge to us to dance with the one that watches. And then from there, react the way that God taught you. As Pastor Josh mentioned in his prayer, I mean, yeah, during prayer time, 
The Bible equates the church as the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. Our marriages should be a reflection of that relationship. Our churches should be a reflection of that. As we seek that healthy, thriving, joyous marriages to reflect the joyous relationship of the church and have Christ. And it's no wonder that Satan wants to attack our marriages, wants to destroy our testimony, wants to weaken our impact for the world and the community around us, and our ability to see others come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? How can we defend our marriages when we live in a society where marriages become cheap, divorce easy? If you're not happy, move on to the next one. We have to make a conscious effort to defend our marriages. One of the first things that, that struck me is you have to look for an escape if you see yourself heading down that path. Genesis 39, 6b through 12. I'm not going to read the whole passage for the, in the interest of time. But most of us are probably familiar with the story of Joseph, how he sold into slavery into Egypt, how he raised the positions of authority within the Pharaoh's household, the honor that the Pharaoh gave him and, and the respect that he had for them, and the story of Potiphar's wife, who set her eyes on him. The passage says that he was handsome. He was a good-looking guy. And this woman set her eyes on him and said, you know what? I'm going to have him. And she pursued him. The passage tells us that continuously, she said, come on, lie with me. And he said, no, I can't do that. One, I can't sin against my master who has entrusted me with all of this. Two, I can't sin against my God. He identified what it was. He identified that that would be more than a problem between him and his master. It's a problem between him and God. He said, no, I can't do that. And one day he went into the house and none of the servants were there. And this woman caught him by himself and grabbed him by the cloak and said, come on, let's go, let's do this. Come lie with me. And the passage says he ran. He took off. He left. He took off so fast he didn't even get a chance to grab his coat back from her. He left it in her hands. He ran. At the first sign that he was in a bad spot, that he was in a bad situation, he ran. He fleed away from her. He flew from her. And we know that the narrative goes on to say that Potiphar's wife lied against Joseph. Initially, he went through a very painful situation, a very trying time, but then it all came to life. And we know that God used him, used his obedience to save his whole family, to save a whole nation, because of the obedience of this one aspect of his life. He didn't give a chance. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but more times than not, adultery doesn't happen just because two people wake up one morning and say, you know what, let's grab a play. It happens because of a series of actions, a series of little actions that lead to that culmination. It happens because people allow little actions like glances, whispers, careless flirting, office husbands, office wives, secrets. They allow their place in their heart to take root and develop until it's too late. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation it will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. God always provides a way of escape. That's a promise that we can set all of our hopes on. But unfortunately, all too often, we're so busy focusing on the lies or we're all too busy focusing on what we're getting out of this relationship that we don't see the freight train that's coming down on us. We don't live up to the calling that God gave us. Now, I'll never forget, there's an old adage about how do you boil a frog? You don't just throw the frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out. You put the frog in a pot of nice, lukewarm water, says, ooh, this is kind of nice, and take a bath. And then you gradually increase the heat up under him so that by the time you realize it's too hot, it's too late. And I think that's an apt description of what happens when people find themselves in that situation. Second thing that we can do to defend our marriage, in addition to looking for a way of escape, die to self. Ephesians 5, and Pastor Josh referenced this, 525, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We have to die. We have to die to our selfishness. We have to die to our rights. Christ gave up his rights when he died on the cross. We're called to do the same thing in our marriages. Ignore the lies. Live up to the calling that Christ has given each and every one of us. Invest in your marriage. Make a conscious effort to invest in your marriage. Don't just go through your marriages on autopilot. Invest in them. Two books, if I could recommend them, I think this would be required marriage, reading for all marriages. His Needs, Her Needs, a guy named William Hawley. And in that, and in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into great detail, but the subtitle of that book is How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. And he uses the analogy of a banking account. And every time you meet your spouse's needs, you're putting a deposit in. And every time you don't, you're withdrawing the deposit. And when people get into negative balances, just like our bank accounts, unfortunately, when you get into negative balances, that's where bad things happen. Second book is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And for any of you that aren't familiar with it, Gary Chapman outlines there's five primary ways that people express and receive love. And we need to learn those and practice them. Make it your mission to shout love in your spouse's life. Take no greater pleasure and joy than meeting your spouse's needs. Look for ways. Figure out what their love language is and learn to speak it fluently. Pray for marriages. Pray for our pastors. Pray for our leaders. All too often we're hearing stories of leaders and pastors that are disgraced because of sin that they've fallen into. Surround yourself with love and committed couples. Surround yourself with people that are an encouragement and a blessing to you in your own marriage. That are an example to you in the way that they live their own marriage. You're going to start having a worship band come back up. After my first year of college with Word of Life, I had the opportunity to go to Poland, Hungary, and Romania with a team. One of the towns we visited it was called Gdansk. It was the Polish name of Danzig during the German occupation during World War II. And it was kind of a fortress of sorts. It was the town square. There were buildings on each side, and then there were arches on each side that you would go through and then the town square. And in this day and age, it's filled with vendors. But I'll never forget, I was there, and I looked around at the, at the facades of the building around me, and I saw these pits out of the stonework. Where are those? 
Well, that's the shrapnel of the bombs that were dropped during World War II. And you know, you could see the damage of those buildings, but they still stood. They were still functional. Because they had decided that they were worth fighting for. As we closed in, so what do we do if we find ourselves in a situation where we realize, wow, I've really screwed up. I've really done it this time. Praise God that 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Thought of the story of the woman at the well. John 4, we have the account of Christ going to the town well and this woman who was a Samaritan, which in and of itself was bad enough. They were looked down on by the Jews. They were half-breed. They were less than. But Christ strikes up a conversation with this woman. And during the course of the conversation, he asks about her husband. She says, no, I'm not married. She says, no, I know you're not. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. But he spoke love and he spoke truth into her life. And the passage tells us that this Samaritan woman, after Christ had identified himself as the Messiah, she in her own heart, she said, you know what? I think it's really him. And she went back to her community, to her family. And she said, you know what? I think I've met the Messiah. I think he's really who he says he is. And the passage tells us, it doesn't specify a number, it says, many in that Samaritan community came to a relationship with Christ because of the testimony of this woman who had made a pattern of bad decisions. God's word says that he brings beauty from ashes and he wants to do the same thing in our lives. Whether it's a sin of adultery or it's a number of other sins, the Bible doesn't differentiate. God wants to work in and through our brokenness. It's those times in my own life, where I say, man, I'm not up to this. But I see God work most powerfully. And He wants to do the same thing in our own lives. If we'll just trust Him. If we'll just come to Him with a humble heart, with a repentant heart, say, you know what, God? Messed up. I haven't lived up to the calling that you had for my life. But God, I confess that to you. I give it to you, trusting that you're going to put it between your shoulder blades. That you're going to move as far as the east is from the west. Use me, dear God. Use my brokenness. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our word. We thank you for the Ten Commandments and the rest of Scripture for giving us a blueprint of how to live our lives. Pray that you give us the strength and the courage to defend what you've called us to, to defend what you've given to us. That you would help us to take refuge both within your Ten Commandments, dear God, and within our marriages from the cares of this world and all that it throws at us. Dear God, we confess our sins today. We lay them at the foot of the cross, knowing that you've promised to forgive them, knowing that you've promised to work through us. Dear God, continue to work in and through us in the days and weeks to come. Use us both through our talents and in spite of our weaknesses, dear God. We pray that you 
for all of the promises that you've laid out for us. In your precious son's name, amen.